Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And so two of the non-Quakers escaped during the time they were in Virginia, and two of the most prominent Quakers died while they were in exile, 200 miles from their homes and their children and, and wives. That's author Norman Donahue II discussing his new book, Prisoners of Congress. Philadelphia's Quakers in Exile, 1777 to 1778, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price, available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Ned Donahue, and he's discussing his new book, Prisoners of Congress, Philadelphia's Quakers in Exile. Ned's new book is really special for me because I'm a big fan and proponent and scholar myself of the politics of Pennsylvania in the 18th century. One of the things about the revolution you'll understand and certainly know from listening to this program is that every colony and then every state had its own unique flavor or patchwork of political factions and political ideologies at war. America was not a monolith. Uh, It certainly wasn't in the 18th century. And this sort of political division is something we've gotten very used to today. But it's always been present in understanding the unique features of each individual colony and state uh, is really, I think, critical for understanding the whole. Now, Ned Donahue is going to tell a story in this book uh, that's really fascinating, showing just how terrible and divisive and uh, sometimes inhumane politics can be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Ned Donahue. Ned Donahue... Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Tell us about your background. Well, all right. So um, I'm a retired lawyer and a retired charity fundraiser. And in the sixth grade, our teacher took us to the Historical Society and showed us how to work in primary sources. This was incredible. Teachers didn't do much of that back then, but this was in 1956. So I majored in history in college, and I practiced law for 34 years as a probate attorney, and then I practiced about the same amount of time as a charity fundraiser. I loved history since early childhood. My parents were, my parents loved old things. Uh, And there were three things that happened. One, uh, for preschool, my mother took me to the Friends Meeting House 
in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, in Chester County. And before she left me, she said, Ned, these people don't believe in war. And that stuck with me. And I was always interested in the contrarian way that Quakers think. They don't think like everybody else. Uh, they're nonconformists in a way. And that's the way they mean to be. Secondly, when I started doing family history and genealogy in my mother's family, I found we had a German immigrant from the 18th century. And he became quite a good farmer in Western Maryland. But toward the end of his life, he bought three land tracts in Bedford County in the middle of Pennsylvania from the Quaker merchant, Henry Drinker in Philadelphia. And Henry Drinker uh, was pacifist like my ancestor was. And I thought that was an interesting connection. And then I learned that Henry Drinker was one of the Quaker exiles. And that just amazed me. And um, I wanted to learn more about it. Later, I learned that the 18th century stone house where I grew up was used as a way station by the exiles when they came back to Philadelphia. And I only learned this after I'd completely written the book. So it was a stunning moment. Uh, and that's how I got into this. What did it mean to be a Quaker in the 1770s in Pennsylvania? Well, first of all, uh, William Penn had founded the colony, and he was a Quaker in 1681. But uh, 90-some years later, uh, the Quakers were in decline politically. All they had been, although they had been preeminent culturally and politically for the first 90-some years of their presence in Pennsylvania. Society at that time around Philadelphia was moving toward a violent break with Great Britain. At the same time, the Quaker religion was reforming itself, trying to get more pure. The peace testimony was a central provision of the Quaker religion, and uh, it caused people to mandate great care as once the revolution began in 1775, the Quakers in Philadelphia were made to pay for their exemption from military, which they had historically not had to pay for since uh, a colony came into existence. So politically, things were declining for the Quakers, and they were caught between their co-religionists in the meeting and uh, the new, newly elected government of Pennsylvania, which was heavily peppered with people who were willing to violently break with England, which the Quakers weren't. And the Quakers told everybody, and everybody knew that the Quakers didn't want to break with England and didn't want any violence. And uh, this became 
a bit of a rub and uh, the Quakers uh, were rubbing their neighbors the wrong way and the neighbors were pointing at the Quakers. Some jeered them, some made fun of them, some carted them around uh, in quasi-violent intimidation. Uh, And it was a a scary time for a lot of Quakers. Even when the government said, we're going to have a feast today and not open all the businesses. And at night, the Patriots put lit candles in their windows. The Quakers would not agree to do that. And thus, a darkened Quaker house was a provocation that these people aren't with us. And that became a difficult uh, road to hoe. What was the Quaker objection to the American Revolution? Well, at base, there's the violence. They they believe in the golden rule, rule, do unto your neighbors as you would have them do unto you. That's sort of the basis behind the, the uh, pacifism. But there was also other factors because uh, the leading members of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting were transatlantic merchants who were captains of industry and owned ships, which they sent to London and from London to the West Indies, from the West Indies back to the colonies. And so they were involved in the triangular trade and uh, they thrived within the British Empire. So they had this notion they didn't want to leave the British Empire and they still revered the king. Uh, as many people did, although that was changing right before their eyes. Uh, So uh, they were holding on to a vision of the past, and the patriots, as I saw it, um, seized the public imagination by creating a vision of the future. Uh, And so... uh, Politically, the Quakers had been very much in control of Pennsylvania up until 1756. That was the beginning of the Seven Years' War. And um, that brought withdrawal of the Quaker members of the legislature because they feared they were going to be under great pressure to pass legislation to pay for a militia. And they did not want to taint themselves with war. And there were other uh, trends running in the Quaker community. Maybe they shouldn't be paying taxes because the taxes would go toward the war. Uh, So the uh, Quakers uh, got out of the legislature, which uh, began to uh, accelerate the decline in political uh, power of the Quaker faith. And then, of course, there was the Stamp Act. And the the Quakers uh, joined with other merchants in the city. There were about 200 of them that signed a uh, protest of the Stamp Act. Uh, And that was one thing. But as the years went on past 1765 towards 1775, uh, many of their neighbors were willing to go toward violence to break with England 
uh, over this and other matters. And uh, the ones who were in charge in a lot of that period were re- extra legal revolutionary committees. And these committees were set up by uh, the radical Whigs uh, who were willing to break with England and they were pretty much running the show. So if a Quaker uh, said publicly or wrote publicly to the newspaper with words that seemed like they were Tories, uh, fond of England and uh, not willing to break, uh, they would invite them into the committees and then they would grill them uh, and uh, show them up to be uh, against the, the new order of things uh, in the committee room and their neighbors would begin to attack them. So there was a lot of intimidation and uh, some bullying and uh, some subtle, subtle efforts to persuade the Quakers that maybe they shouldn't be so unwilling to break with England. Uh, and uh, the opposition to Quakers grew stronger and stronger. But nevertheless, they published their testimonies to the public, stating how good it had been under the British Empire and how they revered the king. And then they said to their members, don't join in preparations for war. And they rejected the Continental Association. They rejected the oaths of allegiance and they rejected joining the militia. And then they rejected the substitute tax you had to pay if you weren't joining the militia. And that was a nasty one because when the Quakers stopped paying their taxes and many of them were quite well-to-do, their neighbors weren't happy at all. What was the Quaker objection to the American Revolution? Well, so they refused to bear arms and told everybody about it. They refused to pay the substitute tax and told everybody about that. They refused to accept the new continental currency that the Congress had mandated and was uh, putting into circulation. And as far as financing the war, the continental currency was the only way that uh, the Second Continental Congress could finance this war. Uh, Other things were not available to them. And uh, the Quakers said, we won't accept that in payment of debts or mortgages or purchase prices uh, because that money was emitted for war. And so this was really, uh, the rubber was hitting the road here uh, in the friction with the Patriots. They also refused to affirm their allegiance. And when they scattered agents of the government around the city to collect blankets for the soldiers who were uh, spending the night without a blanket and couldn't fight as well the next day, and the Quakers refused to give them any blankets, even though they would be paid for the blankets. And then the leadership of the Quakers refused to accept the legitimacy of the elected government of Pennsylvania. So there were more than more than a dozen ways that are documented that Quakers 
uh, resisted the new government. And uh, this was breaking red lines after red lines, I think. They were testing the patience of the patriots, and it reached a boiling point at some, at some time. Ned, talk about how they resisted the newly formed Patriot Congress in the Quaker community. Yes, they had a very uh, hierarchical system whereby the Philadelphia yearly meeting controlled the Quakers in Pennsylvania, in some parts of Maryland, in some parts of Virginia, in some parts of New Jersey. Uh, So they had a large territory that was subject to the control of the Philadelphia yearly meeting. And the Philadelphia yearly meeting had an executive council, which it called the meeting for sufferings, sufferings meaning damages that Quakers were suffering uh, for their faith, uh, for having resisted uh, any temptation to join in warlike measures. So even the name sufferings uh, uh, rubbed the patriots the wrong way. And the people that uh, we had leading the meeting for sufferings were the four, uh, the three Pemberton brothers, Israel, James, and John, and uh, the Henry Drinker was another leader of the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting and the Meeting for Sufferings. And um, uh, there were others, Edward Pennington, uh, Thomas Wharton Sr., who were among the exiles. Uh, and the, the closest association among them was their uh, membership in the Meeting for Sufferings in Philadelphia. And they would uh, send out uh, letters to their flock all over Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. And uh, for instance, uh, around September 1, 1777, they sent a letter saying, don't any of you cooperate with your local governments who are telling you to get ready for, uh, to defend uh, against um, uh, certain forces coming into the area. And that, of course, was the British Army was on its way. And um, they landed in Maryland uh, 60 miles from Philadelphia on August 25, 1777. And uh, so they said, don't cooperate in any way with your local government or your state government. And um, because you don't want to taint yourself with war, which is against uh, our basic principles. Um, and yet they said nothing about not cooperating with the British Army, which was coming through ready to burn, destroy, kill, and maim uh, everything in its way. And indeed had done the same in Charlestown, Massachusetts, in New York, uh, and in certain places in New Jersey already. So the British had been brutal, but nothing was said about not cooperating with the British. I think this was a time when uh, this was a mistake because they told all their neighbors, we're going to be neutral. 
and there were roughly 30,000 Quakers in southeastern Pennsylvania. And you can't control 30,000 people. And some of them started to cooperate with the British. Uh, and sure, some of them also cooperated with the American army. Uh, but the uh, a, a lot of the patriots saw some hypocrisy here. You told us you're going to be neutral and you're not going to favor either side, but that's not what I'm seeing in practice. And so they began not to believe the leadership of the uh, Quaker faith. And they, they saw these uh, moments where the facts conflicted with what they said. Who were the Quaker leaders of this resistance movement? So the Congress recommended to Pennsylvania which had police power to uh, round up uh, a list of Quakers who were on the list both of Congress and of Pennsylvania. I call it the hostile list, people who they thought were hostile to the new order of things and the American cause. Um, and so they told Pennsylvania, round up the list of these people and we're going to send them away. And so uh, they did that. But uh, you won't be surprised that they had a multi-pronged plan uh, to uh, attack the Quakers. They arrested them without an arrest warrant uh, signed by a judge. It was just signed by the Executive Council of Pennsylvania. They used the militia to arrest them and not the sheriff. And this began to look pretty irregular. And the Quakers had lots of questions. What are we being charged with? Well, they made absolutely no criminal charges. They just said, we're taking you into custody. And, uh, and why did you do it? Oh, because Congress recommended it. Well, that's never a good answer as to why you arrest somebody. So they used preventive detention to take them into uh, custody before they had done anything. Uh, They suspended habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a bundle of rights saying, um, if you qualify, you can get before an impartial judge and the judge will decide whether you were legally or illegally arrested. And if it was illegal, he'll let you go. He'll release you. And uh, but Pennsylvania passed a law, September 16th, 1777, suspending habeas corpus as to these 20 men who had already been arrested. So it was, in addition, an ex post facto law, a law created after the facts of the case. So all in considered These were illegal arrests, and they were just doing it because they could. Uh, They could use the militia, and they knew the Quakers wouldn't physically resist because they don't believe in violent resistance, even if you're being arrested illegally. And then there was some political chicanery, which was like, backroom stuff that was done against the Quakers that you can read about in the book. There was a lot of obfuscation. Plus, 
there was fake news. This is this is pretty <laughs> this is pretty amazing that you find fake news. So on August 28th, 1777, Congress received a letter from Major General John Sullivan, and he had arrested uh, what he thought was a potential deserter in his ranks. And when they went through the baggage, they found papers which looked like Quaker meeting minutes, okay? But it was just the look. They referenced the Spanktown uh, annual uh, yearly meeting. And there was no Spanktown yearly meeting. If you asked any Quakers, they'd have told you that, but they didn't even ask. These papers looked like they were Quakers on the surface, but you didn't have to examine them very hard to figure out they were forged. But Congress <clears throat> then required the newspapers to publish these papers, which they hadn't even verified uh, were signed by Quakers. And there were no names of anybody on these papers, no names of Quakers they could point to. So they gave the papers to a committee of three called the Committee of Spies uh, in the Continental Congress, and John Adams was the head of it. And uh, within hours, the same day, that committee reported, not with telling the Congress who they thought wrote, wrote these papers or investigating anything about the papers. They just said, Here's 11 names of Quakers who should be arrested based on our preconceived notion uh, that we've heard, heard tell from others that these people uh, aren't with the uh, current trend of things and uh, aren't, are, 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 are acting hostile to the American cause. And uh, so the Quakers were silenced. They were refused a hearing by Congress, refused a hearing by the Executive Council of Pennsylvania, and they were denied any appeal to the judicial courts. So this was what I call the triple silencing of the Quakers. And I think it was probably part of an overall plan. I haven't found the plan uh, after the um, the British occupation of Philadelphia for nine months in 77 and 78, uh, the Quakers gathered and gathered all the evidence they could of the uh, exile of their leaders, and they kept it, and they published it in 1848. The Patriots, for their side, never spoke about this group of events after the British evacuation. Uh, so we have a lot of evidence from one side and very little evidence from the other side, but we can know by what they did, uh, what they, what we think they planned. And it was a, a very coordinated, uh, uh, multiple branch plan to silence the Quakers, and uh, you'll you'll see in the book uh, how these things all came together, and when they came together, the uh, 
Continental Congress debated five hours one day, and four days later they debated four hours again for a total of nine hours what to do with the Quakers. There are no real uh, you know, um, minutes of those debates, but uh, President Henry Lawrence of the Congress wrote to a friend back in South Carolina two long letters saying uh, how much everybody was against the Quakers, and uh, they, that's why they, they had to do something to get them out of town, and they wouldn't take the oath of allegiance, so we suspect, uh, we can only suspect bad intentions, and so we've decided to uh, exile them, and they uh, sent them to Winchester, Virginia, which is 200 miles from Philadelphia, um, which was on the frontier of Virginia, where there were often Indian depredations, uh, and there were barracks being built there for POWs, for those 900 Hessians that Washington captured at the Battle of Trenton, and other uh, British soldiers who were captured were kept in Winchester, Virginia, among other places, and they decided that's where they would send the Quakers, who some authors describe them as prisoners of war, but uh, that's inaccurate because they were, these were prisoners of conscience, if anything, and uh, they were political prisoners, probably uh, among the nation's first group of political prisoners um, because they were there, they were sent there for what they thought, not what they had done. There were never any accusations or convictions of crime for these people. It was only anticipatory, a preventive detention. Uh, and uh, as much as the Quakers uh, protested time and time and time again, I counted 35 times during the Quaker exile uh, that they protested either to Congress or to the Executive Council of Pennsylvania uh, about their detention and that they should be let go and that they're innocent. And um, uh, they're, uh, they were constantly silenced. They were never given any reasons. And uh, we, we only have to judge by the actions taken by the, Quake, by the Patriots uh, what they intended uh, by their actions. And those speak pretty loudly, and you'll you'll see great detail in the book. Uh, I have over 700 uh, footnotes, endnotes, uh, in which citations to sources are made. So there's uh, a lot of material for uh, chewing over for a long time. Ned, how does their confinement ultimately end? That's a good question. So. They got to Virginia, and they were met with hostility all along the way, including when they got to Virginia. After all, when they got to Winchester, there were already a lot of prisoners of war there, and here comes a bunch of Tories. So the local populace wasn't too happy. Uh, but there were also some Quakers who lived in that area, too. So anyway, um, 
<laughs> another odd thing about the exile was that uh, Congress said, you'll have to uh, pay for the lodging and, and the room and board <laughs> yourselves because we're not going to pay for it for any uh, uh, pacifists. And so um, they were there. They stayed at an inn, uh, four and five Quakers to a room in the first three months. And after that, they found lodging with local Quakers, but they had two to five miles each time they wanted to get together as a group. So it, it wasn't easy. Um, on the other hand, they weren't held in barracks like the prisoners of war either. Uh, and they had a parole uh, on their own good word that they wouldn't go more than six miles out of the area. Two of the, the uh, of the 20 prisoners, there were 17 Quakers, two uh, people who had been Quakers but were now disowned by their meetings, and one who was a never Quaker. And so two of the non-Quakers escaped during the time they were in Virginia, and two of the most prominent Quakers died while they were in exile, 200 miles from their homes, and their children and, and wives were in Philadelphia under the British occupation. They were suffering a different kind of fate, uh, not at all easy, uh, being between two armies and uh, being in the thick of things under the thumb of the British. Uh, and uh, the British even quartered many of their officers on the homes of Quakers because they were the better uh, equipped houses in the city and they were more sympathetic, shall we say. Uh, so it was a very, very difficult position uh, without the breadwinner at home uh, earning a living. So, all right, six months go by and then two of the Quakers die and the women are, you know, anxious, worried, depending on receiving letters. Not all letters got through the censorship by two armies, and they were waiting for word. When would their husbands and sons be released? Uh, and they decided, you know, they need medical equipment. They're running out of medical equipment, and two of them have already died, so we better send some medical supplies to them. So they decide to also send a petition. And one of the male Quakers, who was a, a retired lawyer, uh, drafted a petition for them. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. They didn't like the way he wrote it. So the women wrote write a petition themselves. And the petition is to the Executive Council of Pennsylvania, to the governor of Pennsylvania, to General Washington, and to uh, the Congress at York, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they decide to take it with them, and they elect four of their number to go forward uh, on a trip through two, through the line, the front lines of two armies, the American and the British. And they first go to Valley Forge, and uh, Washington 
not only receives them cordially, but invites them to supper, afternoon supper with his uh, 20 members of his general staff and Martha Washington, who's there been visiting for a couple of months. And uh, so they, they endure that. And after dinner, uh, Washington says, listen, I can do nothing for you. Uh, Martha wants to receive you upstairs. So Martha receives the four Quaker women upstairs. And I have new research on uh, a family relationship uh, George and Martha Washington had to one of the Quaker exiles. And this uh, enables a certain, I think, uh, sympathy and compassion. Uh, and uh, uh, a couple hours later, Washington sends a letter to the governor and he writes, the women seem much distressed. Humanity pleads strongly on their behalf. Wow. Uh, that's pretty amazing coming from Washington, who had been frustrated during his entire Philadelphia campaign by the, the non-cooperation he got from some of the leading uh, people in the community, the Quakers. So Washington elevates the conversation wherever he goes, and uh, here he did it again. And uh, so the women left Valley Forge and then went to Lancaster, where they, uh, they met with the governor immediately, and they were not happy. Uh, and then they stayed several days waiting for their men to return. And finally, the Pennsylvania government had been dragging its feet, but but now the women are there, so they don't want to look bad. So they immediately send representatives out to Winchester, Virginia, to get the men and bring them back. Um, because someone in the legislature who thought that exiling men for what they thought and only on suspicion would not set a good legal precedent for the future. This may make us uncomfortable on a future day. So they decided, yeah, we, we got to release the Quakers. And, and the Pennsylvania government's dragging its feet because they know the British are still in Philadelphia. And here the Quakers are going to be released and go back to Philadelphia if Washington allows, and he does, uh, while the British are still there. So they can still perhaps reveal a lot of secrets that... Uh, Pennsylvania has that Quakers may know, but they don't want the British to know. So there's a lot of tension about that. And um, it's a it's a pretty exciting uh, ending to the uh, to the exile and how it all plays out is very much detailed. I, I'm one of those guys who gets into the weeds and. Um, Every little detail is laid out for the reader uh, and with end notes to see where I got the source. It's, uh, it's an interesting story. Ned Donahue, thanks again. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brady. I appreciate it. Oh, there may be something I mentioned, and that is H, it's www 
prisonersofcongress.com. And on Wednesday, I'll be speaking the American Philosophical Society to 75 people in person and more uh, on Zoom. Uh, if you book, it'll be at uh, 12 noon to 1 o'clock. And uh, if you go to the American Philosophical website for events, you'll see lunch at the library with me and hear more. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.